Well, how have you done this week with your tongue? I don't normally start by asking how you're doing, applying last week's sermon, so forgive me for that if you would. But I do think that last week and this week are pretty closely connected. I think that there is a sense in which you could be really good at editing uh, your speech and still have a boiling cauldron of discontent percolating in your heart. I think there's a connection between our words and our wisdom that is evident when we look at the end of James chapter 3. Because James chapter 3 is an attempt to address the root, not just the fruit. So let me ask it this way. How do you express yourself with your tongue in a way that is better than just biting it? How do you bridle your tongue without your heart uh, eating away at you because you weren't able to say what you felt inside? That, I think, is a question that is going to be answered at the end of James chapter 3. And so I'm going to begin reading in James chapter 3, verse 13, and invite you to read along. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So very simply, I think the big idea of this text is that true wisdom is obvious by the quality of your life. The quality of your life displays whether or not you have been affected by wisdom that's from above. The quality of life even more than your quality of speech, displays a born-again heart and true wisdom that's from above. That, I think, is what's at stake in his opening question in verse 13, where he says, who is wise and understanding among you? He probably has the teachers in mind, the teachers that he talked to in the first part of the chapter. Let them show by their good conduct, let them show his work in the meekness of wisdom. The proof of wisdom is found in your manner of life or your conduct. I think manner of life is a better translation than conduct because I feel like I can fake conduct but you can't really fake a manner of life. A manner of life is simply the way that you go about living. And so the manner of life displays what's truly there when conduct, I suppose, 
could be an act or be put on. So display from your manner of life your good works so that people can tell uh, if you are wise. The whole book of James is, after all, about this manner of life. If you just do a brief review, how do you navigate trials? How do you manage your anger? How do you listen? Do you care for the disadvantaged? Can you avoid playing favorites? Is your faith active or is it just an opinion that you hold? Is your tongue an instrument of encouragement or destruction? This manner of life is the obvious lead idea here. All of the qualities that trickle down in this text are part of uh, your quality of life. They either add to or they subtract from the quality of your life, depending on whether you have true wisdom from above or false wisdom from below. This wisdom, like faith, shows up in your good works. It places us back in chapter 2. Chapter 2 says, show me your faith by your good works. And here it says that wisdom too shows up as a product of faith in good works. You show your faith by your good works. You show your wisdom by your good works. And it has the same quality of life. Now I talk about the manner of life and the, the quality of your life. I, I, I want to suggest, though, that he's not merely talking about things that are negative. He's talking about things that are positive. It's not just merely biting your tongue and keeping it boiling inside. But rather, it's this beautiful expression of wisdom that comes out of your life. I mean, how many of us would love a life that is as well-ordered as we see here in this text? And that order shows up first when he says that wisdom is on display by your conduct and your, and your good works, but it shows up in humility or meekness. This meekness, well, I think humility is a better translation than meekness because it's the quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of your own importance. The quality of not being overly impressed by a sense of one's self-importance. That's how one uh, lexicon describes this word. The Apostle Paul tells us that this is a fruit of the Spirit. It comes because the Holy Spirit reigns in you. It's a word that's related to Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount when he said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And so you show your wisdom by the quality of your life. <laughs> Unfortunately, you also show you're not wise by the quality of your life maybe by the bad quality of your life. That's what verses 14 through 16 are about. They're about wisdom that is not from above. If you have bitter jealousy or selfish ambition in your hearts, 
Don't boast or be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly and spiritual and demonic. For where jealous, jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Once you notice the shift in the way that he speaks here. The first question was, who among you is wise? Hypothetically, indirect, whoever it might be. Now he speaks directly to you. Are you wise? Are you acting in this way? And there is a sense in which he does point his finger right at us and ask us the question, is this about me? Does this characterize me? And so he says, don't boast and lie against the truth if you have bitter jealousy and strife in your hearts. He hints here that false wisdom and pride are Siamese twins joined at birth and inseparable. The pride humility scale, you might say, is a good indicator of how wise you really are. In addition, he suggests not only is pride the problem, but if you're marked by these vices, you are not being honest about the source of your so-called wisdom. And these marks help you be honest by displaying the outcome of this false wisdom. It's precisely right here that we all need to press the pause button. It's important to ask yourself about this, about the character of your life, about your quality of life. Because your integrity and your self-honesty are at stake. Your integrity depends on you taking a sober evaluation of your life. That's why he says, you here. And he says that uh, this jealousy and this uh, party spirit are problems for people who have a false wisdom. The vices condemned are, first of all, harsh zeal or rivalry, and second of all, personal ambition or a party spirit. I think a party spirit's really an interesting way to uh, describe that second word. This party spirit, according to one commentator, appears when a person or group emotionally or physically withdraws from the rest of the church. It's a party spirit when it causes you to withdraw. Ouch. I probably don't need to tell you this, do I? But the party spirit is alive and well. Unfortunately, I have a couple of examples. I just heard even today of a small uh, church not far from us that, that let their pastor go. It turns out that the church had been so polarized because of COVID-19 that they couldn't find a way forward. About half wouldn't come to church if everyone wasn't wearing a mask. And about the other half wouldn't come if anyone had to wear a mask. And so they couldn't make that work. That's what this text is about. It is so easy to develop this party spirit. 
It's easy, too, to develop a party spirit about worship, about worship music. People complain regularly, hoping that their complaints will move the needle toward their favorite musicians or their favorite song or their favorite styles. I just have to say, not everyone likes all the music that we sing. But it's different to not like it than it is to create a lobby to try and get it changed. Uh, The wisdom from above that we'll look at in a minute suggests that you can approach these things in a different way. And for now, though, I, I want to assure you that the pastors and the worship leaders are spiritual people who seek the Lord and emphasize his word and serve the church and do their best. And I assure you, too, it will not help to create a lobby against them, and it really won't get you anywhere. But that's the essence of the party spirit, to create some sort of lobby to try and get things changed. Those two characteristics are the primary marks, along with pride, of wisdom that's not from above. And now he turns to the source of that wisdom that's not from above. And he says that the source of that wisdom is earthbound, it's soulish, and it's demonic. He says, first of all, it's earthly wisdom. This earthly or earthbound wisdom is simply a way of looking at things that aligns with earthly priorities. It suggests a narrow perspective that fails to consider God's realm and his will. Earthbound, says one commentator, is a good rendering. And so you have to ask yourself, do you take into account God's will and God's direction, the the prospect that in fact God's supernatural intervention is an option? that miracles may uh, come into play. See, if we are anti-supernatural, we are earthbound. That is the earthly nature of this wisdom. And I think a lot of us even are approaching this pandemic that way, as though (laughs) science is going to take care of all of it as though God is hands off and doesn't really want to accomplish anything in the world. It's just a mess and he's not going to bother with it. But I want to suggest to you that that is an earthly way, an earthbound way of looking at it. And it's a source, the wrong source of wisdom. The next source of wisdom is natural wisdom or soulish wisdom and it is it has to do with un, un, it's unspiritual translate unspiritual here and it has to do with that part of human beings that where human feeling and human reason reign supreme I like the word soulish it might be fair to think of this as emotional wisdom It makes sense emotionally to escape your pressure with alcohol or prescription drugs. You might feel better after you fly off the handle. And then you apologize as though 
it's all better. It gives some emotional support to identify with a powerful tribe that thinks like you think. That is a unspiritual or soulish way of looking at things. Legalism might be another example of this source of wisdom. In Colossians, the Apostle Paul writes a letter to the, to the church about their scruples. He says, don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. And then this is what he says. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom, promoting self-made religion and asceticism in severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. I love that. They have the appearance of wisdom. That's what we're talking about. And this wisdom that's earthy and unspiritual or earthbound and soulish is my own concoction about how I'm going to go through the world in a way that plays well, in a way that looks good, in a way that makes me feel okay. See, I may get satisfaction out of appearing better than I am, but I'm lying against the truth that my external, because my external behavior will not help me. And then third and most alarming, he says this wisdom not from above is demonic. It's demonic. That's the bottom line. It isn't merely that it's non-supernatural or that it's soulish and non-spiritual, is that it is spiritual. And it's the same kind of wisdom that the demons have. You can smell the sulfur and feel the lick of the flames here, can't you? The demons believe God is one and they tremble, he says in the preceding chapter. The tongue is a fire set on fire by hell itself. And he wants us to recognize that there are influences, unseen influences in this world that are working for our ruin. And it happens in the way that we think in our wisdom as well. The the smell of sulfur is everywhere. See, when he's talking about this party spirit and he's talking about this, uh, you know, divisive uh, zealousness and it's earthy and it's soulish and it's demonic, you need to recognize that if your opinions or words or even the approach that you take leads to division, that's what those words are about, you are working with the wisdom that is earthbound and demonic. The demons want nothing more than to prove that something is more important than the uniting, healing blood of Jesus. They want the church fractured. These demons recognize that a church united and in love with Jesus is far too powerful for them. And so they go after it, and they work at 
division and party spirit. And that's the chief characteristic of their wisdom. And I, I don't know of a church split that doesn't have both sides thinking that they're wise. And if you are causing division, you may think it appears wise, but it really isn't. By definition, it isn't wise. He goes on to say this jealousy and this strife bring disorder in every morally substandard practice or evil practice. The kind of wisdom brings disorder. This word disorder, we've seen this word before. It's a kind of way that your life falls apart when you're double-minded in chapter 1, verse 8. It's the result of the poisonous words from your tongue in chapter 3, verse 8. This wisdom, false wisdom, throws things into chaos. And that chaos brings along with it these morally despicable practices that that you have to have in order to navigate a world that is in chaos. That's the bad news. There is wisdom that is not from above. It is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. But the good news is there is wisdom that is from above. In verse 17, the wisdom from above is first pure and then peaceable and gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. This wisdom from above is first pure. It is holy and chaste. When you see holiness, you see true wisdom. It's peaceable. Think of it this way. True wisdom is the essence of shalom. This well-ordered, peaceful life of shalom follows someone who has true wisdom. This is a word that translates the Hebrew word shalom. And so that well-ordered peacefulness is all around the life of someone who has the wisdom from above. Then they are gentle. This is a quality, certainly, that church leaders are supposed to have from 1 Timothy 3. It is, the, the root idea is forbearance. They can hang in there when times are hard. They can bear with difficult people and remain gentle. Can you be gentle around difficult people or around unruly children? That's the idea. This wisdom from above is willing to be persuaded, is open to reason. It is uh, easy to persuade. These people are such good listeners. They pay attention. They learn. Somebody has a wisdom from above is ready to, to listen and respond to what other people say. This wisdom is full of mercy and good fruit. Someone who has wisdom from above is kind and generous. 
the kindness, their kindness and their generosity bear fruit in their lives and fruit in the lives of other people. I mean, we, we know people like this, don't we? And it's just so great to be around those people and it, they have such a good effect on the lives of other people because of their kindness and their generosity. In addition, these people are impartial. We've, we've seen actually the opposite of this word before. I translated this word previously as having two judgments. It's a word that says, this word says you don't have two judgments. And it's the opposite of what we saw in chapter 1, verse 6, where it's translated not wavering. So what happens is when someone doubts, they are wavering. And they're like a, a ship driven and tossed by the wind. In chapter 2, verse 4, this, the opposite of this word is translated as partiality. And you're, you're partial when, or of two judgments when you treat a rich person well and a poor person poorly. And so he says the wisdom that is from above doesn't have two judgments. You know who you're trying to please. You are fastened on by faith to the living God. And you're not going to be dissuaded or knocked off course. And so you're not of two judgments. You're impartial and not wavering. And then finally, this wisdom is characterized by being unhypocritical. Unhypocritical. It is genuine and authentic. You might say you can't make this kind of wisdom up. Authenticity is funny that way, isn't it? Because you can't act authentically. I mean, there's a, I, I've been hearing a lot and reading a lot about authenticity and everyone says, oh, you have to be authentic. But you can't act authentic because then it's an act. It's not authentic. This unhypocriticalness doesn't mean that you have to spout off every bad thought that comes in your brain or that you have to do any stupid action that occurs to you. It means that the good quality of your life is simply not an act. It grows out of your heart. The good words that come, the encouragement, you're not putting that on. It's real and it comes from your heart. And so this wisdom is from above is unhypocritical. And then he says in verse 18, this is a summary statement, the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. There is a result. There is fruit. There is a harvest of righteousness that comes from the planting in peace by those who make peace. So you might say that righteousness or even justice is the result here. A wise person harvests righteousness. They, they, they plant in the soil of peace. They plant in peace. 
And they do it because they're a peacemaker. They do it as a peacemaker. And so let me say it this way. If you want right outcomes, if you want things that are set right in God's eyes, that the means to achieve that end is to act peacefully. When you create a context of peace and you approach the right thing or the just thing as a peacemaker, not as a peace disturber, that is how you end up with righteousness. It's not a surprise, is it, that this echoes the words of Jesus, again from the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And so here we have two ways, really, don't we? Much like the opening of the book of Psalms, that there's a, the, uh, the path that the wise person takes, or the, the path of blessing, and there's a path that the foolish person takes, which is the path of judgment. And here we have two paths as well. We have the path of true wisdom and the path of false wisdom, the path of wisdom from above and the path of wisdom that is earthly and unspiritual and demonic. Now, the question for all of us is what path are you going to be on? Which one of these is going to characterize you? And even as I ask that, I have, I have to admit, I sped over the most important thing in this whole text. I don't know if you caught it or not. But I think the most important thing is that this wisdom is from above. The source of the good wisdom, this wisdom that has such a sweet effect on people and relationships and organizations, is from above. It is a gift. It's really the same way that Jesus describes eternal life. Jesus used this when he said to Nicodemus, he said, you cannot enter the heaven unless you are born again. Or literally, he uses the same word, unless you are born from above. And this wisdom is the same kind of gift from above. Where it's really where every good and perfect gift comes down from above. Wisdom is one of those perfect gifts. And it comes as a gift from the Lord. It's, it's like the fruit of the Spirit. In fact, some of these words parallel the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is the result of having God's Holy Spirit residing in you. It's the wisdom that results from the gift of God. It comes down to you from above. And you exercise earthbound wisdom when you think you can produce this quality of life by your own effort, by trying harder. Trying harder does not break you from this earthly, natural and demonic wisdom. In fact, that's what characterizes that. Rather, 
It's this gift that you receive by faith that changes your quality of life, that changes the way that you express yourself in relationships and go through the world. So how do you get this wisdom from above? If you have a little bit of it, how do you get more of it? Well, here you go. This is fabulous, I think. It comes as an answer to the prayer request in chapter 1, verse 5. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, right? That's where it comes from. That's why you ask, because it's from above. And you need to ask in faith, not wavering. It all rolls together. You ask in faith. It comes with this new birth. It comes when God plants that new life within you. And the more that new life works itself out, the more you live with this wisdom from above and you show from your manner of life your good works. It comes with the Holy Spirit as he produces in you gentleness and forbearance and love and hope and joy and peace. It comes when you cultivate your identity with the living Savior as you identify with a crucified and risen Christ. You become more like that crucified and risen Christ. And you manifest his wisdom as you go throughout the world. The good news here is this wisdom is from above. The more completely Christ dwells in you by faith, the more completely you will manifest these characteristics. The Apostle Paul says uh, a similar thing. And I just love the way that this lands back at Jesus. He says, but we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But But to those who are called, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Christ embodies this wisdom. More of Christ means more wisdom from above. And so I urge you to pursue Christ. I urge you to find in him your heart's delight and satisfaction. I urge you to become the kind of person who has this sweet quality of life. See, think about it. What has been described here in verse 17 is so enormously attractive. Don't you want to be that kind of person? Don't you just want that kind of sweetness to characterize you in your family? at the workplace, in your life group, with your friends. Oh, if only, in fact, I've even thought about this, and I shouldn't even say it. If all of us were like this, if I were like this, all my problems would go away. There might be trials, but 
all my problems will go away. This kind of wisdom issues in such a sweet quality of life that who wouldn't want that? And this wisdom springs from a heart changed by Christ. And I assure you that he will respond to your humble, faith-filled prayer, asking him for more, more of him and for more wisdom from above. May God make us this kind of persons. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, I so badly want these things to characterize my life. I so much want to get rid of this pride and hot-headed zealousness and party spirit. And God, I want, I want, want, want this wisdom from above. And Father, I pray that that would be the case for all of us, that you would just burn in our hearts a desire for more of Christ. Would you just grant us the grace to go through life with this kind of gentleness, with this unhypocritical spirit, with no partiality, with all of this, Father. We would just be so delighted and we would be delightful to be around as well. So would you grant us, grant all of New Life Church, grant everybody who hears this message, the sweetness of this kind of wisdom. Father, we'll give you thanks. In the name of Jesus, our wisdom, amen.